Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project, a podcast for maintenance and reliability people to better themselves both at home and at work. Now let's get rolling. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. On this week's episode, I welcome Cliff Williams, Bob Latino, and Sonia Mathura, and we take audience questions on maintenance and reliability. We talk maintenance benchmarking, we talk common mistakes or things that are overlooked in reliability, and we talk criticality analysis. We also have a special guest appearance from Andy Gailey talking about his experience with criticality over his career. If you haven't yet, subscribe to Rob's Reliability Project on your favorite podcast platform and follow Rob's Reliability Project on LinkedIn. I have some special things coming up for you, and I hope that you're in tune with this so you can get notified first. Also, you can sign up for my newsletter at robsreliability.com. Check that one out. There's special bonus content there every week. Thanks for listening. Now let's get into the interview with Bob, Cliff, Sonia, and Andy. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. We're back with another live webinar, and we have some special guests today. Filling up the screen, starting us off, we have Sonia Mathura from Strategic Reliability Solutions. Up in the top left for me, we got Cliff Williams from People and Processes, and we have Bob Latino from Reliability Center. First off, how's everyone doing? Good, Rob. Great. A bit warm, but okay. <laughs> every, you know, every, day ver- every day vertical is a great day, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, a, a little bit warm. We, I keep hearing that, and, and we're probably like 15 degrees Celsius or, you know. Oh, my God. And we rain today, so, so we're not doing too hot. <laughs> but anyways, I wanted to go bad. around the horn here. I got the first question here, and the first question is always a good one. And the first question that came in was, why is Sonia so much cooler than everybody else? And I, think Cl- it's, I think it's the Caribbean. <laughs> so, so there's Sonia's answer. Now, Cliff, what do you think? Um, yeah, what, I did see the question and, and uh, took great offense at, you know, the other gaggle uh, <laughs> of myself. But um, there's, there's a, a, a simple answer as to why Sonia, you know, will always look cool when she's with Bob and I. Uh, it's because Bob and I are so hot. Oh, you know, we, we are. I it. agree. We are. It. You know, you can't help but look cool when you're with two hotties. Is that right, Bob? Well, I'm I'm in the root cause business, and the root cause of that question I know came from uh, Luke Marino, and that that should be the, uh, the what we get rid of. He, he should he should be banned from things like this. <laughs> That's right. It's a sh- I don't even know if he's in the in the chat here, but uh, yeah, he's the shallow cause analysis says just fire him, right? <laughs> he's a troublemaker. You should ban him. <laughs> oh my gosh, I I don't mind being the, the torn between the two roses. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't think it's quite that bad. No. <laughs> you have to start writing checks now. <laughs> <laughs> what do you want to be, Bob? A tulip? Yeah, okay. <laughs> so getting into it here, 
Um, the first question we got submitted that I wanted to get to, it says, can each of you share one lesson learned in your particular specialty that you find organizations simply overlook? Sonia, do you want to kick us off? Oh boy. Um, something that organizations overlook is just asking questions. And that is one thing that our organizational culture doesn't necessarily promote where we, we look, some, sometimes our managers, they look down on us and they're like, no, you shouldn't have to ask that question. It's, you know, it's understood. But I think it starts there with asking questions, not necessarily the right questions, you know, there's no right question. Just trying to get clarification on whatever you want, start there. Once you understand fully what you need to do or what is expected or the task at hand, then it makes it so much easier. We, we don't have to spend as much um, money in fixing the mistakes afterwards. So just keeping it very simple, understanding what you do, asking the questions. And uh, the other thing would be is to to understand and to know that you are not the only one facing this problem, especially <laughs> in lubrication. Everybody thinks that they are unicorns and very different when it, when it comes to problems. While that may be true with some characteristics, um, basically a lot of the problems, you can't see it in different plants, similar operations. So what I would always advise people to do is reach out to your colleagues, your sister plants, your, um, your manufacturer, your OEM, because they would have seen these problems across the, across the world. And given the situation that we're in now, where we think that we're not as connected as we used to be, we're actually a lot more connected than we were. So now we're reaching out more, we're using more, um, non-traditional ways of talking to OEMs of you know just contacting them in the past we would say okay well we have to wait for this person to give the approval you know now I think and just from my experience last week I reached out to some guys and they were like yes sure we can help you get an FMEA for that and they were very helpful and I did it through LinkedIn so ask questions don't be afraid to reach out to experts within the field because guess what? The reason that they are experts in the field is because they know a lot more people in the field than you do. So go to them for help, go to them for guidance and just ask questions. They can ask you, Sonia, you know, you're the expert. And oh yes, they can ask me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and if you're listening, absolutely feel free to, to reach out to me too and, and I can hook you up with the right people. Cliff, how about you? What do, you, what do people overlook? Um, yeah, uh, for me, um, I think the, the thing that people overlook or confuse is um, something that was on LinkedIn just recently around uh, what gets measured gets managed. Mm -hmm. And there is nothing further from the truth. Um, people will start to measure, and, and once they have a measure and they, they have an understanding of the what, they leave it there. They don't pursue it. They don't look to find out the whys that are there behind it. Understanding what's driving those things into Rob's, into Bob's uh, kind of 
sandbox around the root cause analysis, but um, thinking that by measuring something, uh, it's going to be managed. It's just a crazy, uh, it's a crazy idea. And worse than that is you get two, two feet, you know, two kind of camps in this where one will then measure everything because they think that by measuring everything, they're managing everything. And the other is they measure the wrong things. Um, and what seems to get missed by, by all of these organizations is that when you're measuring, um, you're actually driving behaviors. And so if you have bad measurements and wrong measurements and you don't react to the measurements, then it's back to that old culture word again, you know, you're, you're creating a culture that you don't want. So, you know, these organizations need to look way past what, get a good understanding of why, and figure out what they can do about it. How can they make it better? What, what was, and is it really important? You know, it, it, are, are we really looking at those things that affect our strategic objectives? Or is this just something that's nice to have? You know, is it okay, we can do this? It, it, it solves everyone's emotional needs, but does nothing for the organization, you know. It's, so getting those right measures and then driving down from those measures to actually finding what, what is impacting and influencing the measures and doing something about it to, to improve it. Um, unfortunately, so many times I've seen it that, yeah, you know, we, we, we've got this, yes. Why is that not hitting target? Well, it's not hitting target because of this. Okay, great. You know, now we understand why it's not hitting it. Let's, let's move on. Um, just, just silly. But there we go. Um, it is what it is. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, metrics. Oh, don't, don't get a start of about yeah. metrics. There's a lot. There's an hour on metrics just there. <laughs> now, now, Bob, I mean, Cliff sort of led you in there. Um, you know, like when we find a problem, we got to actually fix it, right? So, I mean, what do you see in the RCA world with respect to, uh, you know, what do people overlook? I think it all kind of melds in together because the, uh, and I, I constantly see it, and you've heard me use the term over and over again of shallow cause analysis, but I, I don't think uh, the physical world uh, listens enough to the social science world. I think that analyses uh, have a tendency to conclude with the physics of a failure. I think that they, you know, they're happy with replacing broken parts or replacing OEMs uh, or vendors. And uh, I don't think we delve enough, uh, deep enough into an RCA to understand why good people make bad decisions. We, we tend to uh, blame them. Uh, we think it'll go away but we, we don't delve into understanding why they thought it was the right thing to do at the time. And I think that that just uh, sets yourself up for failure again. You're, you'll be in the shallow cause business if you continue to just stop at the physics and you don't understand why your people feel the decisions they made were the right ones. Because those, those systems that they're relying on, which are not perfect by any measure, uh, are flawed. So you, you can blame them all you want, but then somebody else is going to make the same decision because you haven't corrected the system. Uh, I know I only looked at one thing, but uh, the, the second one is that when you do look at, into these systems, you can expect that, uh, you know, managers tend to seem that they're okay with uh, blaming 
an individual with having a head that rolls with a, with a with a specific failure. But when you look down and you look at uh, poor management systems, then all of a sudden the managers get offended. And I don't think that you're going to go ahead and make any progress with your RCAs if uh, people don't have the courage, the leadership doesn't have the courage to look in the mirror and say, I'm part of the problem. And then that's, that takes, uh, you're not going to progress in whatever you're doing unless you're able to admit that we're part of the problem. Yeah, I love it. I really love it. And actually, Bob, that was where I was going to take this question was down this road of leadership because, and it goes along also ties in with what Cliff was talking about and what I talked about on my show um, yesterday is just like you can use metrics to punish people and you can use it to bonus people and you can set up these systems in place and yet we're forgetting that it's still people who are operating the plant and we're not robots that have a heartbeat that run on metrics and i think we forget that and we we even sometimes we talk about culture as this way of achieving better reliability and better productivity and better profitability but we don't actually like take it to that root level and i think like to me the further i come and the more I learn the technical aspects of reliability by talking to great folks like you, it's, it just becomes so obvious that like what's missing is not the technical aspect of how to do RCA or how to do RCM. It's just how to better lead people. I think you can't, uh, you know, me metrics, they, they have good and evil. It depends on how you want to use them, you know. I'm all for throwing the metrics out when it comes to my diet because then you can't hold me to account. But, uh, you know, the metrics in general, people worry about them, especially from a safety perspective, is because you can manipulate a metric. If you, if you, set, if you throw it out there, that's the goal, and, and, and the goal is just to meet the metric. And I want, you know, you, I'm not going to get into the debate on here about zero harm uh, with that. But, you know, what, what happens when they set a zero harm metric? is that uh, everybody will not report. <laughs> so exactly. yeah, we'll, 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 we'll get that goal, but uh, you know, it, it doesn't mean you're any safer. It's a false sense of security. But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't have a, a means of measuring that you're making progress. And I think that that's where the differences are between the safety and the reliability world are. But uh, everybody has to be cognizant that uh, you, metrics uh, put in any place is that you're, you're setting yourself, so you have to be, uh, cognizant of the buy, the potential bias to manipulate that metric. I always, I always say that, that I, I want a metric that no one else can see and I am the only one who knows it exists so then I can use it to understand. <laughs> you'll, you'll have that when you get married, Rob. <laughs> yeah, to Bob's comment around, you know, why do sensible people do silly things? And, and it goes back to just something it reminded me of, you know, where there was an organization that was hell-bent on MTTR, meantime to repair. How quickly can we get back up and running and everything? And I remember talking to a, a tradesperson who had done a, a horrendous job, you know, and this was a good guy. This was a good guy, and he had done a horrendous quick fix to go, you know, and such a work why did you do that? You know better than that. He said, well, you know, you got our manager crawling all over me to say, get back up and running as quickly as possible because I'm NTTR is what he's getting judged by. So we mm -hmm. have the metrics, the leadership driving 
sensible people to do silly things and it just goes on and on and on it's just uh yeah a challenge. I, have a, I have a funny story with that one for metrics for an rca system i was at a refinery this was years ago but they, they they thought they were doing the right thing by putting a quota on the number of rcas done per engineer so uh, by the end of the year in December, because they tied it to their performance evaluations, you'd be getting RCAs on, you know, why the Snickers bar wouldn't come out of the machine. I mean, uh, so. I, I think that's an RCA I need to see. But <laughs> let's go on. <laughs> that's just another way where you, it was well-intentioned, but you were just trying to hit a quota and you weren't getting the, you weren't interested in the benefit you would get from an effective RCA. I, I worked for an organization had, that had literally 30 reports that the door hadn't closed, that the automatic door closer wasn't closing. And there were 30, everybody that came through the door, oh, great, I can put in a near miss. And it was like 30 people in the end. They said, okay, uh, you know, let's realize that the Bird Triangle and the Heinrich Pyramid are slightly flawed. Um, let's get away from that. And, uh, but yeah, it, it, it's amazing what those things will drive. Oh yeah. <laughs> so one of the next questions that came in, we got we got one in the chat that I'd like to throw out there. Someone wants someone asked, Ernie asked, he's looking for a great resource on criticality analysis. Yeah, does anyone have any tips? For me, I've seen great articles on criticality from Assetivity and from James Kovacevic. Uh, does anyone have any input on that one? They, they can look at Uberlytics, uh, Zach Tacoma. Um, he's based in Arizona, and they have a slightly different approach to criticality. If you're looking, you know, the other ones you can get from some of the, you know, the, the well-established criticality people, but they look at it from a business unit criticality perspective and break it down differently and, and try to simplify this process to get you through it quicker because if, if you want to do good criticality analysis it's a long drawn-out process using everyone in the organization it, it, it cannot be done by one person sitting in a room it's got to be done by a cross-functional team and it takes it takes a long time I, I've been down that road and um, yeah and, and Again, it comes back to culture because you have to have culture where people are prepared to accept that, okay, um, you know, when we're giving input, everyone's giving input, and sometimes our input isn't quite as important as the other input mm -hmm. um, to get the criticality. But Uberlytics has a different way. If you're looking at something different, um, and anybody can get in touch with me, I can put them in, in, in touch with Uberlytics. Awesome. I've got some input. Um... I run criticality studies for PepsiCo R&D um, here in the UK and previously for uh, the PepsiCo business at large. And um, when they first tried criticalities from external resource people, um, they found, as Chris said, it's so long-winded um, that you couldn't really see any uh, real ROI in it because it was going to take so long, so much resource, and really, we're not flying planes. So uh, we're also at the same time using an RCM process, again, from an external. And they came up with a PepsiCo process that melded 
some RCM process with some um, the, the criticality uh, into five levels, um, not into kind of nine levels if you're going to aerospace. Um, and then um, I, I, I basically facilitate people on plant because they're the people that know um, what, what's going to go wrong or what is going wrong with the plant. But uh, fortunately, a lot of what I do is, is new, new builds. So they've never existed before in R&D. Uh, so therefore, you don't have to think about meantime between failure as in a, to apply to that plant. But you have to have a really good background and understanding of the equipment that fails within a production process. Um, and that way we can lighten the load um, and, and get it done in a couple of months at, at, a, at a kind of a sketch level. Now what you do, you, you make it a live document. So you don't put it to bed. You don't just do it and put it on the shelf. You, you do it over kind of 30 or 60 days. Um, by that time, the plant's going into commissioning and starting to run. And then you revisit it every three to four months and start finding out, well, what were the, what were the snags that they had? Did we find any lubrication problems? Did we miss anything? Because you will miss things. So if you do a criticality study, sometimes people find it so laborious that they'll just do one piece of plant. And for me, I, I think you should concentrate on the system and almost use like, I call it drone or helicopter vision, where you come in on a plant, you take a line and then you, you know, put it into compartments and then you drill down into components of the asset and then components of the components of the asset. But you also take into account the safety aspect with the people, the training they will need, the lubrication regime, uh, the visual aids. So it becomes um, like a broad document for then targeting your maintenance or your prediction or your lubrication. Um, love it, love it, yeah. I, I haven't got any experience of, of using off the shelf software systems that says, well, this is a criticality system, go and fill the boxes in and it spews out something you, you can't understand. So one of the things that the problem with R&D is they start and stop all the time. So they don't run in a steady state. So straight away, I had to rethink how I'd normally do a criticality. I had to think, well, what are their, what are their, what are their um, risks and consequences of this piece of equipment failing? So they, they won't lose a supermarket shelf, but they might put their project launch back. So you have to think about um, their aims, their targets in a different way. Cliff, I saw you shaking your head about, uh, yeah. about using just a preset criticality. What do you think? Yeah. No, I don't think so. Um, no. In, in the, the other thing that Andy brought up that was, uh, again, really interesting, that gets forgotten, and it's a once-and-done approach to criticality, and that is so dangerous to have a once and done approach, you know, the business change. And, and that's why I say it has to be cross-functional. You have to have your business people in there. Okay, what are we looking? Are we trying to protect, you know, shelf space? I worked for Coca-Cola and we were trying to get Pepsi off the shelf. 
you know, so we, our criticality were those things that um, Pepsi were directly competing with and all, all these other things affect what is actually critical to the organization. Because if we don't look at what's critical to the organization, but we look at, well, you know, what is a critical piece of equipment, um, we may not get the right answers. Uh, and, and it has to be completely cross-functional. You know, we have to have safety environment, yeah. um, production, operations, uh, sales, marketing. All of these people need to be involved because something like having marketing flexibility would make a piece of equipment uh, critical for the organization. Whereas if you looked at it from a maintenance perspective or for an operations perspective, they turn around and say, well, yeah, we only use it 50% of the time. You know, it ain't that critical. We can manage without it. And marketing can say, no, if it's there, we need it to go, you know, especially in consumer product good. You know, they, that, that field is where you have to react to lost leaders and everything like that. Um, it, make, it, makes, it makes a big difference uh, whether you're in a sold-out position or you're not. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, in a sold-out a sold position, your margin, you're looking at throughput, and then every hour counts. You can't get it back. And then a non-sold out, you're looking at the expense side to get your margin back. And, uh, you know, now you're looking at the cost of the equipment failing. Whereas if you had a spare before, nobody cared uh, if the spare would work. <laughs> it would work. Uh, but uh, it makes a huge difference from that perspective, uh, whether you're in a sold out or not position. Yeah. And that's why it's got to be dynamic. It has to be, you know, you have to be going back in and looking, at least having an organizational awareness that things have changed. You know, it's COVID. Is every piece of equipment still as critical as it was before COVID? Is it, you know, all of these things, are we not, it, it, it just is not a one and done. It can't be a one and done. But unfortunately, it tends to be that because as Andy said, you know, it can be laborious. And I've spent weeks upon weeks upon weeks upon weeks doing criticality analysis with, with a baking company. And, um, did we improve anything? Sounds boring. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of, one of the things I find is because all of the previous criticalities I've done were on high tonnage plants. So 24-7 running, running for 12 or 18 days. Um, obviously, very, very short lead times to logistics, getting stuff off site. And then when you go into an R&D facility, and you find out that their, their needs and risks and consequences are complete, completely different. You've still got the process that you, you're down to use, but I had to modify that process on every level to fit, well, to try and fit the R&D model because their, their, um, their appetite for risk was a lot, lot lower than it was for a production facility. So it was very, in some uh, respects, it was very, very strange. Although they weren't using, they were producing tonnage, they needed availability because, at least, again, I didn't realise this until I worked with R&D, is that a plant in Mexico or in China or in UK, there's only kind of five R&D centres. They, they could be running a, a trial for, for Canada in the UK. Well, they could be running one for Singapore or Kuala Lumpur um, in Mexico because they all have their speciality. So it's not even, it's not even within the walls of the factory. It's a global uh, need. 
and, and people call upon that from around the business sphere in uh, fried food or peace we call potato chip or, or cakes or soda I didn't have anything don't have much to do with soda but um, yeah so risks and consequences is always that but you've got to say that's one thing uh, they say the, the, the organisation overlooked they thought it was a one hit thing there you go you do that you ex execute the criticality and then you get paid in two or three months time and that's it done and I said well no we, there will be a date in the diary where once this gets to six and nine months we'll be revisiting it and I said in that case it may only be a one or two day process because we'll just take the learnings of what you've had and we'll review it and we'll see whether we need to skew one way or the other and the first one I did for them, they had loads of PMs they weren't doing. Loads. And lots of unplanned downtime events. We, we, I wiped all those out completely. And then we reviewed it after 18 months. And their downtime events had plummeted. But they hadn't done any PMs. Well, they didn't need to do any PMs. They only ran the plant for three days out of seven. And that was only uh, in the daytime, not at night. So, they, you know, their use case, uh, some of their lines will probably only be uh, commissioned for three to five years, not for 20 years. So the, the, the whole criticality thing, you have to dial back to what the risks, what's the consequences. Yeah, That's I love another thing that uh, Andy brings up that triggers me from the first question, some th things that people overlook. Is, and it comes to this discussion about bringing the worlds of uh, safety and uh, risk versus the consequences. Is that, you know, RCA in the industry has a, uh, is notoriously known for being reactive because we usually have to have a trigger before we employ the principles of it. But, uh, you know, and, and there's a regulatory driver which makes people do RCA only when bad things happen. But there's no reason that you can apply the principles uh, effectively to uh, unacceptable risk. So that we're doing RCA, uh, if you do a Pareto cut on like an FMEA that you've done or an RCM that you've done, and you, you find the 20% of the failure modes that generate 80% of the risk, there's no reason you can't do an RCA to say, why is the risk high? But because there's no regulatory driver, uh, it, nobody's going to do it. Love it. Yeah, I mean, risk is something that, that we, talk, we need to talk about more. And actually, it kind of leads into a question that I got on LinkedIn the other day. Um, and basically, the question was, you know, this, this gentleman, his company is deferring a lot of maintenance this year because you know, they're cash strapped. And he was trying, he was basically wanted to know, you know, like, how do I either justify maintenance or defer maintenance? Like, how do I understand that? Do you want to like, Cliff, do you want to kick us off with any thoughts sure. on that? Yeah, sure. Um, organization that I work with uh, runs um, highly hazardous chemicals and uh, under OSHA, um, they, they're under the PSM governance of OSHA. And so uh, we have to have a mechanical integrity program that describes all of these things. And as part of that, we have to have um, a, a decision tree, if you like, that will then help guide 
those exact same questions. So what we do is if we say, okay, we've got to extend this, you know, the period between uh, PMs or shutdown, whatever it is. We, in our case, it's usually shutdowns. Um, then we have to look exactly what problem, what Andy's talking about is what are the risks? You know, what are, is this likely to have an environmental impact? Yes, no. Is it going to kill somebody? Because if you're producing chlorine and all of these things, it can be nasty. Yes, no. And then you look at um, identifying those risks. And then what, it, what, if anything, you can do to mitigate those risks? So let's assume that we have a tank and it has you know, internal pressure, internal levels. We can say we'll only run it at 50% because that reduces the risk to an acceptable level. Or we will only run you know, for at this speed because it reduces it to an acceptable level. Or we will inspect things, you know, we, we will do our, our, our condition inspections more frequently so that we will have, you know, some time to, to uh, you know, to do something about it should we see a change in that. You know, and if we get to the point where it doesn't matter what you're doing, you're not reducing the risk to an acceptable level, then our, our procedure is you shut down and do that PM. You know, and that's it. But it's all risk-driven. Um, it has to be uh, it, it, because, um, you know, we really don't want to get involved in, in environmental incidents or harming someone or any of those things. Um, it really isn't necessary. But you have to have that, um, that decision tree. And we, we decided to have a formal, a formal decision tree where, there's no, you know, there's no sort of, well, I, I think we're okay. It was, you know, let's do a process, process has an analysis on it if, we, if we're not sure. So that's really the only way to, to prove our, it, it's a tough, it takes time again, but all good things do. So um, it's better than shooting from the hip. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, just the only thing, Sonia, I'll let you go after this, but the only thing I wanted to say on this is there's, there's an expectation that the risk will increase, right? So you have to communicate that upwards. They can't just think like, oh, if we just defer cost, it's just going to be the same risk next year. That's not necessarily the case. The second thing is you do also need some sort of risk tolerance as an organization and people who are willing to sign off. Like I know I've talked about this before and it's actually a concern at my workplace too, is some people who are making the decision do not have the signing authority to accept this level of risk. And so it's just something to be aware of is who's making what decision. If you're deferring maintenance and it's the maintenance tech who's deciding, hey, I don't have to do a PM on this transformer, it's probably not the, the ideal situation for your plant. Sonia, oh boy. go ahead. <laughs> it definitely is not the ideal situation for your plants. Because your plant is your plant is your lifeline. And I love the fact that we're talking about yes, we need to have cross-functional um, teams to come in and assess. And I think that sort of brings everything back. Uh, your ISO 55,000. So that is your, your certification standard when you're trying to get things aligned the way that they're supposed to be. And for anybody just, you know, thinking about it, you know, check out, check out the ISO 55,000 standard. 
it has a lot of guidelines and you can probably use that to sort of streamline your processes in your plants because what you want to do is firstly ensure that your people are safe forget about products your people are safe first and once they are safe they are comfortable let's look at your production lines let's look at your optimization so it has to be integrated and i've worked with companies uh where the finance department says i am not going out there i do not want to see what's outside of my building and what's going on in the next section yet yet when they go out into the world they're like yes i work for this company i don't know exactly how they produce the products but i work for this company so it comes back to organizational culture and just trying to get everybody involved and what what i've realized in the past is that by getting the different departments involved they now understand what role they have to play cuz finance may think they don't have a, a big role to play but if we have a tender going out for um a maintenance turnaround on the plants guess who's getting involved finance your legal department is getting involved as well so getting them to understand what is critical to your maintenance department while they may think just like just like we're talking about while they may think it has no bearing whatsoever they everybody needs to understand their role in the organization and then to bring it all together so leadership 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 very important <laughs> and that goes back to ISO 55000 so great place to start if you're you know trying to get things uh to a level that you wanted to be at and it's like i love the iso 55000 if you didn't realize by now yeah <laughs> <laughs> so sonia i'm pretty sure it's not just finance that doesn't want to walk the oh plane either God, there's yeah. there's <laughs> lots of people like even reliability people that i've seen don't walk the plane my so it's so weird right i've been in this ammonia plant and i'm talking to the guys in reliability and they had an issue with varnishing so the guys in reliability are saying no we've never topped up this sump before we only do it every 6 months and i talked to the guys in maintenance and they're like we put 10 drums in there every 2 weeks i'm like oh, okay well you only need to talk to each other <laughs> and they're right across from each other so yes we we need to get everybody on board on board in real time understanding their role and function and i think that by helping them to understand the role that they play in the plants or they play in the production or play towards the profitability of the company it drives our employee morale so they're more willing to come to work they're like yes i have a purpose i'm serving a purpose i am doing something i understand what i do and it it helps it helps them become more efficient sometimes if you provide snacks it also helps people become more efficient too but you know <laughs> yeah no i i definitely agree now bob i guess i wanted to ask you like over your career in rca like how often or have you seen cases where role clarity was one of those causes that people just didn't know whose responsibility was what yes <laughs> Can you elaborate? 
it's a it, it's it's really I'd say it's more often than not, and especially with my work uh, in the in the healthcare industry and in hospitals, is that there is uh, often a uh, misunderstanding of uh, roles between uh, departments, floors, ED, uh, you know, everything like that. You know, I, I was thinking of what uh, Sonia was saying, and, and when you look at the give people a crystal ball everybody responds to imagery oh my gosh yes and, and you say <laughs> and you and you say uh if, they, if, you, if it's your decision to make something uh, say that it's high risk or it's low risk say how are you going to look in the rca because you're going to be a hero or a zero how confident are you that you're not going to be a circle at the bottom of that rca that says you you made the call <laughs> on uh you know that risk was a it was a low risk and somebody died like, that, that, that when you when you when you put the onus on people like that it, it takes a, a different uh they take a different image of it yep. so uh I, I think that uh we, what we have to do and this gets back to the looking in the mirror except we're doing it proactively in this way is because uh you know i thought i look at these potential incidents and, and then you uh, i look at near misses where people uh, decide that it's a choice. If I have if I have a near miss, it's a choice to do an RCA or not. Uh, and since there's no regulatory driver making them do it, they're not going to do it because they're busy. But the root systems that led uh, to that near miss occurring are still all there. We've we've just chosen not to look at them. So they'll they'll crop up somewhere else in somebody else's uh, decision in doing that. I think that that uh, that look, you know, look in the mirror kind of concept is something that we need to use more often. Because you say, all right, post consequence, what do you think is going to uh, people are going to find when they look at this? And then we find that there there was a the risk assessment was uh, not appropriate. I don't like looking in the mirror, Bob. I just I keep seeing my hair hairline get <laughs> higher and my weight get more, and I don't want to see it anymore. At least your mirror doesn't crack when you look in it. So. <laughs> <laughs> so next question that came in, I wanted to I wanted to pick your guys' thoughts. Probably be the last question is how do you assess the current state of your maintenance and reliability program? Bob, we got you filling up the screen. Why don't you have a first crack at this one? I mean, how, how much proactive work are you doing than reactive work? I mean, it's when just you're that uh, easy. <laughs> Well, you know, uh, when I bring this story up a lot, but when uh, uh, we, we were established as an R&D group in uh, 72 and nobody had ever heard of reliability, they were trying to figure out where to put reliability on the organizational chart. And they were saying, well, we're, you know, we're going to put it subordinate to maintenance and say, well, that makes absolutely no sense because uh, maintenance is a today activity, a reactive activity, and reliability is a tomorrow activity. So then they said, well, you know, uh, the decision was made to make them parallel to each other, reporting to different people so that you're isolated from it. And then they said, okay, well, we need some people in reliability. And they said, well, they're all working in maintenance. So, that, you know, we have so, we have so many people working on fixing things that we don't have enough people to prevent them from uh, failing. So that was the that was the whole uh, policy that was uh, in the design of the reliability at that time was that you know we want to reduce the amount of fix it time uh, of the people that are constant fixers and then move them into more challenges. I mean, there's nothing that pisses people more off than uh, you know they get really good at, at fixing things because they're getting way too much practice. 
that's boring as hell. So, you know, why don't you put them into a, a reliability position where they can do root cause analysis, they can do these risk assessments, they can do all this predictive and preventive work, uh, where it's, it's, you know, it's more creative, you know, you're starting to use their brains instead of their brawn. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know a lot of people that do that metric of, uh, of the reactive work versus the proactive work. But certainly, the better you are at proactive work, you should be starting to see a reduction in the reactive work. Well, I'll step off my soapbox now. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you know that uh, maintenance is today and reliability is tomorrow. That's one of my favorite quotes that I've gotten on this podcast, and it's yours, Bob. So I, I, I like it every time. Uh, I mean, I hope other people see it the same way, but I mean, you're, you're you have to be isolated from it because of. Uh, I saw that a lot in the uh, in the 90s and the early 2000s of when the refineries were trying to get into reliability. And they, all they did was change the title of the maintenance engineers to reliability engineers. They didn't change the function. If, you, if you're an engineer and you have to do both, you, you will never do reliability work because uh, <laughs> those production people, they're, they're going to have you uh, chasing down uh, rabbits and, uh, you know, doing those, all that reactive work. They're not going to let you go. <laughs> and Cl Cliff, you know that you told the same story last time you were on the show about uh, when you went for a job interview and they were asking you how to how to find all these reliability people. Yeah, yeah, and um, yeah, they were actually going to to hire ninety six reliability people, and, and when I asked them, you know, where are they going to find these wonderful people who are educated enough to build the role that they wanted and they said yeah well we're probably going to take our maintenance managers and uh, I said okay yeah no what program have you got to you know to bring them up to speed with what you expect them to do and the answer was none and uh, so they became reliability managers but as you Rob as you know that um, my hatred for the term reliability as a department <laughs> and as anything else it's an outcome people it's an outcome it's the outcome of doing good basic maintenance practices it's an outcome and uh, when i started out in the uk there was no such thing as a maintenance and reliability group maintenance did it all and all of the things that um, people term as being reliability engineers were, I always did as a maintenance manager. Well, why was I to go and ask somebody else when I had all of the facts in front of me and I was the one that was actually being measured on the success, the reliability managers could come up with whatever they wanted to do. They weren't being measured as to whether we were getting enough throughput and all of those things. I was. So why didn't I take that control? And so it, it's it's been a a bane, but uh, it's there, but it really uh, reliability is an outcome. And if we don't involve everyone, if we leave people sitting in their offices doing Weeble analysis and not understanding that the operator keeps putting it in upside down, <laughs> we ain't going to get very far. So, um, so back to the, the question, um, first of all, you got to understand what success looks like. If you don't understand what success looks like for your organization, and then you can do an assessment. You need to look and an, an assessment of lots of things because you may not be able to do proactive work because the operations people won't shut down your equipment. So the reason for you for those numbers, um, you may find that procurement are buying 
cheap parts and they keep falling down and falling breaking and so you're having lots of breakdowns maintenance can't control that so understanding what success looks like understand go back to Sanya's talk about 55,000 and all the rest of it is that getting everybody to understand in the organization how they impact and influence maintenance and the strategic objectives and it needs to be looked at from a strategic objectives perspective rather than oh yeah I, I'm doing all my PMs on time. So what? <laughs> you know, great. Well done. Thanks very much for doing your PMs all on time, but we, we're still not getting the runtime that we wanted and any of those things. So uh, it's understanding what success looks like, measuring how you're doing against it, but not in isolation because um, you, you can't control everything. Uh, various departments impact and influence, and various departments are impacted and influenced by it. The maintenance world so it's a toughie but figure out what success looks like and then look at how you're how, how you're doing in it against achieving it love it love it love it Sonia how about you oh boy I think the first we I, I love to start with ISO 55,000 <laughs> but definitely uh, your maintenance journey is it's so many different things because when you think about it, uh, first of all, lead it back to what your main or your male um, goal would be. Is it that you're trying to produce X amount of products or you're trying to make sure that you have this amount of availability? Or what does exactly what Cliff said, what does success look like to you? So we need to figure out where we're at now, where we want to be, and do a gap analysis and figure out how do we get from where we are now to where we need to be. And 55,000 gives you that, that guideline. And they talk about your leadership, they talk about your management, they talk about, it's in so much detail. And I'm very grateful to the, the writers of 55,000 because they brought up ICML 55, which I love as well. But um, just having that guideline there, that, that's a start. And you, you can use that as a starter and put that as your, almost your world class. Or check with what your other guys, your sister plants are doing, your sister companies, persons within the same industry as you. So sort of benchmark where you're at, trying to figure out... Um, how much you need to do to get to that level that you want to be at. And your biggest competitor is yourself. It's not, not the other company. It's just making sure that you do more than you did yesterday and you can do that today and improving your efficiency. So you're not competing against the world. You're competing against yourself. Remember that. But just improve. Mm-hmm. Can I just give a watch out about 55,000 because yeah. <laughs> um, I've been I've been on the 55,000 bandwagon since maybe 20, 2013 when we, we started to develop this um, is that it is not the thing that's going to solve all your problems. Oh, definitely not. <laughs> because we see we see organizations that say, okay, I need a SAMP, strategic asset management plan, tick. I need a risk register, tick. I need an asset management tick. And they've got all these ticks. 
Mm-hmm. They're no better today than they were yesterday, <laughs> but but they've got a bunch of ticks, and so um, it, it's it really is a, a, a you know a great document. But as some of the some of my friends have reminded me, good companies were doing this way before uh, fifty five thousand or PAS. You know, it was it was the disasters in the UK that Andy could speak about. I'm sure at, at Infinitum. That, that drove that past 55 and then people started to realize that yeah this applies more than just for utilities in the UK or mm-hmm. what have you um, but yeah we, we should you know form a band or something like that you know 55,000 supporters <laughs> or after we are after all Cliff we are that cool oh yeah you're, you're hot you're way hot, hot. hot. <laughs> So let's wrap up here a bit. Sonia, do you have anything to plug? Um, I would just say that we have some awesome workshops coming up with that we've partnered with RCI, Reliability Sensor Incorporated. Those would be in the month of August. And if you don't already follow Bob and I on social media, on LinkedIn, please do that now. And you will see all the information about uh, the workshops. Uh, we have some very 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 exciting things coming up and i'm not allowed to talk about it but it's going to be very interesting stay tuned for that in august <laughs> <laughs> cliff how about you um yeah in in the maintenance and reliability world uh, people in process are moving to online training and so um, there's a whole bunch of stuff happening there and as Sanya has been just going on and on and on and on about fifty-five thousand. I feel I have to point out that um, we at PMAC have online asynchronous. You don't have to be there at any time during the week. You just have to have a computer. And um, it, it's a course that is six modules and uh, 10 weeks for each module. And you end up becoming a certified asset management professional. And it, it kind of opens the doors to all of the delights that Sanya's seen. So. <laughs> oh, I'm just riveted now. <laughs> Bob, Bob, I know you got something to talk about with Easy RCA. Do you want to you want to jump in there? Hell yeah. <laughs> I'm looking for anybody who does RCA that we have uh, have a beta product ready that we need testers and uh, it, it, the the gem of this is that it was designed to adapt to wherever you call RCA instead of what I call RCA. So uh, I'm not, uh, the, the goal given to the programmers was there should be no training needed to use this program. So I'm not going to give anybody guidance on it. I, in the link in there, I put out a set up an account. It only takes a few seconds, but I just want you to beat the hell out of it and tell us what's wrong with it. Awesome. Yeah. And, and if you're listening to the recorded episode, the link to that will be in the podcast notes as well as the links to, so you can connect to Sonia, Bob and Cliff, even though I, I don't know how you'd be here if you didn't connect with them, but, but that's another story. I forgot this was recorded. I probably should have been saying half of this stuff. <laughs> I don't edit. I don't edit these posts, so sorry. <laughs> uh, I couldn't get. I couldn't get a worse reputation than I have. So. <laughs> yeah. When when I get the copy, I'm sending it to Reese Davis. You know, he's gonna love the fan mail from Sanya. Oh know. boy. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, perfect. No, I, I appreciate I appreciate you guys joining us today. And I really appreciate you sharing your knowledge with us, Andy, and you as well, for, for jumping in there. And I guess plugs for me, if you haven't yet, subscribe to Rob's Reliability Project on your favorite podcast platform and follow Rob's Reliability Project on LinkedIn. I have some special things coming up too that, uh, you know, it'll be coming out probably August, September. And also, you know, I do produce the best memes in the industry. So you, oh, you want to get on those. <laughs> so thanks for coming. Yeah. And uh, have a great week. Thank you. Thank you.